Monsters Walk With Us contains explicit language, adult themes, violence, and may not be suitable for listeners under 18. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Listeners, thanks so much for tuning in this week. And I have special guest, good friend of mine from college, Jessica. Why don't you tell everyone how we know each other? They call me Jess. I won't give any free promotion, but we went to uh, college together. And I want to say, was it our first year or my first year at Nari? Were we on the same staff? We were on the same staff. So we were on the same staff as RA kind of launched from there. Yep. Quite a few memories. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So this week, we are talking about a case that actually happened on campus at a college. Our content warnings for this case are murder, rape, torture, and blatant higher education incompetence. Good times. The norm. Yes, of course. (laughs) The sources I used are Wikipedia. There is a channel on YouTube by Kendall Ray. There's a video on this case. The Unsolved Mysteries Fandom Wiki and a New York Times article by Michael Levinson. Kristen Denise Smart was born February 20th, 1977 in Augsburg, Germany to Stan and Denise Smart, who were both teachers. She had one brother and one sister. Kristen's family moved to the States during her childhood and she was raised in Stockton, California. Kristen is really tight with her parents and her parents are really supportive of her and they have a very close and open relationship. Kristen is a student at Cal Poly. Cal Poly has one of the largest college campuses in the United States. There is 9,178 acres and Cal Poly is the second largest land holding university in California. The lands are mostly used for student education. There is the main campus They have two nearby agricultural lands and two properties in Santa Cruz County. Part of the Cal Poly property is the Swanton Pacific Ranch, a 3,200-acre ranch located in Santa Cruz County, California, right outside the town of Davenport. This ranch provides them educational and research opportunities. So there is rangeland, livestock. There also are forestry operations for the College of Agricultural Food and Environmental Sciences. So that's where the students students are going to get their hands-on experience. Cal Poly's current on-campus housing system has 6,239 beds. It's the largest student housing program in this California State University system. At the time Kristen was at Cal Poly, there were four groups of residence halls on campus. And Greek organizations had been active at Cal Poly since 1949. As of April 17th, 2018, all Greek life has since been suspended indefinitely by the university following a number of racial controversies, the most recent of which was the 2018 Cal Poly blackface incident. As of 2018, Cal Poly San Luis Obispo has the least racially diverse student population of all of the California State Universities and University of California campuses. It's still a lot more diverse than the surrounding community that it serves. The city of San Luis Obispo is 84.5% white. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The Los Angeles Times actually reported that the university, quote, was ranked one of the nation's worst serving institutions for Latino student success. The Education Trust lists the university as a, quote, engine of inequality because very few students come from working class or low-income families. It is one among 20 public institutions in the U.S. with this negative distinction. That stuff is current. Yep. 
So it's safe to say it's pretty Hawaii and probably even more so in the early 90s. Of course. Cal Poly currently is also known as a big party school. And with the growth of social media, students have flooded the housing market, which happens a lot in college towns or cities where the school becomes a big party school. A lot of wild parties have caused a big rift between town and gown, as they say in the higher ed business. It's college community relations. Currently, the university is building housing on campus to try to house up to 65% of their students because they do less than that right now. And they plan to cap enrollment at 25,000, which means that at least 11,000 students are going to have to find off-campus housing. Obviously, this creates an affordability crisis because Mm -hmm. most of the apartments that would be occupied by low-income individuals and families are now flooded with students. And this reduces the supply and pushes low-income residents further out of the city, which means that they are further put at a disadvantage by having to add time to their commute. About 27% of the residents live below the poverty line. That percentage is similar to Cleveland, Ohio. I've never thought of these parts of California as being gentrified, but that's very clearly what's happening here. Yeah, and especially with the the schools and institutions really kind of taking that up. And a lot of the time students want to stay living where they've attended school, if especially if it's a city or if it's a town, they they want to stick around. Kristen is a very pretty blonde woman. She's tall and she's very strong. She's 6'1 and she loves to swim. She is 19 years old. She's really social and popular. She has a lot of friends and she stays still really close with her parents when she goes away to school. She calls them almost every day. And this is before cell phones. So this means she had a landline phone in her room. And she would use that to call their landline phone at the house. I know I visited home and there was a landline there and it rang and it freaked me. I was like, what is that? (laughs) Those still exist? Kristen also goes by the nickname Roxy. In May 1996, Kristen is going out to look for a party with her girlfriends. It's Friday of Memorial Day weekend and she's down to clown. Before she goes out, she talks to her mom on the phone. She tells her... I have a bunch of good news to tell you, but I'm going to have to tell you later because I'm about to run out the door. Kristen and her girls are out and about looking for something to get into. And Kristen sees a guy friend of hers drive by them in a truck. So she waves him down. The group of women get into the car and they cruise around for a little bit, but they don't find any parties that they wanted to go to. And everything's starting to fizzle out a little bit. It's like, we couldn't find a party. We're all going to go our separate ways. Kristen remembers that a friend had told her that there was a birthday party happening at a frat, Kappa Chi, and they head back over that way. Kristen's three girlfriends decide that they don't want to go to this party, but she decides to go anyway. And they drop her off a few blocks away from the party, and then they head back to campus. Rule number one, don't separate folks. Bring a buddy. One of the three female friends, Margarita Campos, said that Kristen seemed really disappointed that her friends didn't want to go to this party, but also said that Kristen had assured them, it's fine. I'm really social. I'm going to probably know a bunch of other people there anyway. So don't worry about me. I'm still going to go. Around 2 a.m. on May 25th, 
the birthday party ended and the party goers dispersed, Kristen included. Kristen is not a big drinker. And on this night, she's had a lot to drink between 11 p.m. when she got to the party and now 2 a.m. when it's breaking up, which is a very short window to have more than a couple drinks, especially if you're a lightweight and you don't drink very often. Kristen is extremely intoxicated, so much so that she passes out on the neighbor's front yard right after leaving the party. Cheryl Anderson and Tim Davis had just left the party and they see Kristen on the neighbor's lawn as they're leaving and they do what you need to do and they pick her up and make sure she's okay and start walking her back to campus. Shortly after they start the walk back, they run into Paul Flores, who is another Cal Poly student who had been at the party. Paul Flores offered to help the group walk Kristen back to campus and even let her lean on him for support because she was still pretty tipsy on the walk back. Tim says goodnight to the group and Cheryl, Kristen, and Paul Flores all walk back to the dorms together. Eventually, they get closer to the dorms. Cheryl lives further down the block than Kristen, and she asks Paul if he can get Kristen safely back to her room. Flores agrees to walk her to the room, and they say goodbye to Cheryl, and this is the last time that Kristen is seen alive. According to Paul, Kristen is struggling with walking straight, and he's very kindly, quote, assisting her by holding her hips and waist while she staggers around trying to get home. Such a gentleman. Yeah. Thank you. He also says that he gave her a hug to warm her up because she was freezing. Okay, my dude. He says that he got Kristen back to her building safely, and then he went back to his own room in a different building. The next day, Kristen's parents think it's strange that she hasn't called them, but it is Memorial Day weekend, and they think maybe she just got the days mixed up or She got carried away with her friends. They found something to get into. Maybe they went on a trip. But then Sunday and Monday come and go and still no call. And so now they know something is up. They start reaching out to all of Kristen's friends. And they find out nobody has seen Kristen since Friday night. They call the campus police right away. Campus police are extremely shady about this whole report. They don't want to call the actual police and report Kristen missing because that's terrible PR for the school. I will say in my experience working with campus security and cops, they're not always sending their best and brightest. Okay. Yeah. There is actually a federal law in place about campus reporting of crimes and events on campus. It's known as the Cleary Report. This federal law, the Cleary Act, requires all colleges and universities that participate in federal financial aid programs to keep and disclose information about crime on and near campus. This law is named after Jean Cleary, a 19-year-old Lehigh University student who was murdered in her residence hall on campus on April 5th, 1986. So this is just a few years before this case with Kristen. Jean's murder triggered a backlash against unreported crime on campuses across the country because there was literally no law regarding them even keeping records of this shit. Jean Cleary was raped and murdered in Stoughton Hall at Lehigh University by Joseph M. Henry, who was also a student. Cleary had been awakened by Henry while he was in the process of burglarizing her room. He brutally beat and tortured her before he killed her. 
Prior to her death, there were reports that her dorm had 181 situations of auto-locking doors that had been propped open by residents. Where was the hall director? What the actual fuck? Gosh. Henry is believed to have gained access to Jean's room through these prop doors, as well as her own room door having been left unlocked for her roommate who always forgot her key. This was one of the most infuriating parts of working in housing for me was trying to convince people to lock the door when they're in the room. I always, the second I get in my apartment, lock the door behind me because I don't want someone walking in. And Richard Ramirez, his whole thing was like, if the door's unlocked, that means they want me to come in and kill them. They're give me the okay. Lock your fucking door. It's just mind-blowing to me how just... No, it's cool. You know, it's partly too like this feeling of youth of like, I'm untouchable. Nothing bad will happen to me. Yep. My campus will keep me safe. And when you're on campus, everybody in the dorm is your friend. And like, why would anybody want to hurt you? Right. Yeah, exactly. So Henry was reported to the police after confessing to the murder to a couple of his friends. Who the fuck wants to brag about this? You fucking asswipe. Can you imagine like you go over there for a Keystone light and he's like, yeah, let me tell you about what I got up to. Good for them. They called the cops and were like, this shit is not okay. As Connie and Howard Cleary, Jean's parents, learn more about Jean's death, they become convinced that she had died because of the security issues and a rising crime on campus, which 181 times is not a fucking K. At the time, Lehigh University's vice president, John Smeaton, said that security measures were more than adequate, reasonable, and appropriate for our setting and our situation. You can't prevent everything from happening. At the bare minimum, let's try to prevent some murders, please. How how fucking callous are you, my dude? I've known so many of these type of people in higher education, who instead of just, this was awful, I'm not going to defend myself, I'm going to take these lumps, which is what they expect everyone underneath them to do, and this man could not do that, could not put that aside in order to give this family any meaningful reconciliation. I just can't imagine being like, well, what the fuck you want me to do? Make sure they're not propping the doors? How do you do that? It's so disgusting. They're strictly trying to protect their image. And, you know, like you said, just accept that you fucked up. You know who's going to catch it, too, is that poor hall director who has to live on campus and is going to have to deal with helping the parents get stuff out of their room. That's something that a lot of my coworkers had to deal with. Or, like, I personally have had to help counsel students going through loss of other people in the building or having had a traumatic experience with someone else in the building. It's very meaningful work. It's very emotionally heavy work. And I guarantee you this fucking dude never did any of it. Never, because you would never talk to someone's family this way. And your residents, their parents, they're looking to you. And here you are, you're still kind of an agent of the institution, the university, the college. But at the same time, you're there front line with all of them. Even with this wonderful statement, the Cleary family still believes that the campus crime statistics, if at all had been reported, were underreported. And her parents founded a nonprofit organization called Security on Campus, Inc., 
later renamed the Cleary Center for Security on Campus. And since the act became law in 1990, there were some major incidents that universities have been found in violation of the Cleary Act. And these include the Penn State sex abuse scandal, the shooting at Virginia Tech, and Eastern Michigan University and the murder of Laura Dickinson. Laura Dickinson was killed in her residence hall room on December 13th, 2006. DNA from semen found on her legs was matched to Orange Taylor III, also a student, who was convicted of murder. According to police reports, the investigation was regarded as a homicide, but this was denied publicly and only officially announced and confirmed on the day of Orange Taylor's arrest, February 23rd, 2007. His arrest took place on the first day students could not withdraw from classes and housing for a full refund. It's like I'm speechless because you know that there are probably individuals that are sitting there at the table saying, why don't we wait? Who the fuck was in charge of the housing department? Who the fuck was in charge of y'all's occupancy? I need to know. I need to know. I, oh my gosh. Like I have seen some shit, some shady shit in my day. And I have seen some shit that like, one day will come to light. I know that what's done in the dark will come to light. I have faith in that. But I absolutely know some people who they may not have ever vocalized this thought, but they certainly would have had it. Like, oh, fuck, that date's so close. Yeah. You know, students couldn't even make a decision as to whether or not they would end up enrolling because it's like, if I'm not going to be able to live on campus, I want to have that experience right. to live on campus. But if you're not telling me, you know, or you're holding off until a certain date intentionally, probably so that they can get the housing deposit that are non-refundable, despite there being a pandemic, you know, it's, it's just, a, it's a twisted game. It really it's is. It's so gross. This housing refund shit has me so fucked up. I'm not going to lie to you. Because I did it, I can't get over it. Imagine having to be the live-in staff when all of those motherfucking students find out and all of those parents find out and everybody is like, give me my money and I'm fucking leaving. And you're there at the building having to deal with people angry moving out. There's a lot of great people still in. I'm not saying everybody's evil. I met a lot of good people, but on the whole, the system is very broken and it exploits the people at the bottom. That's some background and context for why the campus police are, maybe this isn't actually a big deal and you're just overreacting because you know she's like a college student, right? The campus police insists that Kristen must have gone on a quick trip and just not told her parents. And her dad calls bullshit and drives to campus to start hanging missing person signs. The campus police don't file a missing persons report for three more days, which is May 28th, 1996. Kristen's roommate finds her wallet, keys, and all of her things still in her room. There's no physical evidence of a struggle. There's no blood. There's no DNA. And there's no trace of anybody. So making an arrest is going to be really difficult if something did happen. It's later revealed that Paul Flores had been accused of stalking another female student living on campus, but she had declined to press charges or pursue formal action. And I'm just going to go ahead and guess that someone at the college influenced that decision. Yeah. 
A month and a half passed with Kristen missing, and cops decide to bring in cadaver dogs to see if they can detect human remains on campus. The cadaver dogs get to campus with their handlers and beeline to one dorm, room 128. This is Paul's room. Multiple cadaver dogs are brought in to confirm, and Paul's roommate Derek had lived on the right side of the room. The dogs immediately sent on one corner of Paul Flores's mattress on the left side of the room. This is still not enough evidence for an arrest. How? Seriously? I assume because the mattress didn't belong to Paul exclusively in a legal sense of the word. I know when I worked, we never, ever kept records of that. Like any individual mattress, when it got replaced, it just was like, if this is damaged at the end of the year, charge them, flip it. So they probably couldn't give concrete evidence to say only Paul had this mattress this year and that definitively proves anything. I mean, I'm not a professional, but bring them in for questioning at some point. They do eventually remove the mattress as evidence. First, they take a piece and then they take out the entire mattress. And they again bring cadaver dogs in to scent. Round two, electric boogaloo, the dogs bust ass right back to room 128. (laughs) I don't have to work with the cadaver dogs to know what that means. Obviously, a dead body was in that room. Derek said that Paul had admitted to killing Kristen and bringing her body to his mom's house. Paul is also seen with scratches on his knees and a black eye shortly after Kristen disappeared. He claimed to have gotten the black eye from a friendly game of basketball where he'd caught an elbow to the face. Detectives check in with the friend that he name drops, and they find out that Paul already had a black eye when he showed up that day. Suspicious as fuck. They call Paul out on this flaming bullshit. And Paul says, I just didn't really want to tell you the real reason. It's so stupid. You know, it's like, it's so whack, you guys. I was installing a sound system and I smacked my eye on the steering wheel of the car. Can we recreate that? Can you show us how that happened? Because the cops say, well, why should we believe you now? You already have been lying. And instantly Paul goes, well, yeah, but that wasn't important. Cadaver dogs only, you know, came to your door mattress twice. Directly to your room? Like, yeah, that makes sense, buddy. Sure. Many speculate that Kristen may have been drugged at the frat party. And Paul saw her as an easy opportunity for a woman that he could victimize. Some think that Kristen possibly woke up as Paul was trying to sexually assault her and that they had a fight or that Paul killed Kristen while she was still unconscious. The most common theory and the hometown listener who emailed me this case. Thank you, Dana. This is what. They said in the email as well, everybody believes Paul is guilty. Paul brought Kristen's body back to his parents' place and buried her there. And allegedly, Paul's father told a friend once that Kristen had been rolled up in a carpet and then buried under concrete. Wow. That's very specific. Yeah. So Paul's mom owns a home. And the cops end up using cadaver dogs at all of the Flores family homes. A neighbor to Paul's mom had a neighbor 
next to Paul's mom's property, had seen two men at the house digging holes and filling them with concrete the night Kristen disappeared. The holes were around waist deep, seven to eight feet long. What's that for? Old serial system. He said that he also saw something very heavy lower down into the hole and that both the men had to lift it. He then came forward about a week later because he saw Paul's mugshot and recognized him. Another neighbor had also noticed a lot of construction happening at the house around this time. This following October, the house is being rented. The tenant is outside washing her car, and she sees a flash of blue on the ground as she looks down. She bends down and on the driveway finds a small blue earring. The earring had a red rust-colored stain on it. Kristen's parents say the description of the earring matches one of Kristen's favorite pairs. Of course, the cops completely botch the one piece of physical evidence that they have so far. They place the earring loose in a drawer and it magically disappears. It just just gets lost, you know? AKA, there was some Flores money floating around. I'm going to say allegedly just to protect myself. Is there information on their family background? Not really. I might have a little bit more later in my notes, but I don't think so. March 3rd, 1997, cadaver dogs go back to that property. The dog alerts at a concrete bricked garden area, but it did not show the specific alert for human remains. The next day, a private contractor is out there looking at the property again, and he wants to use ground penetrating radar so that they can see what is underneath the concrete, if anything. Makes sense? The police declined to bring the dogs out again or assist with the ground penetrating radar, allegedly because Paul's mom just wasn't even living at that property when Kristen went missing. So what? But you owned it, right? Right. I just, these cops, later it's discovered that Paul's mom was in fact living there at the time. So this bullshit doesn't even hold up. They eventually do search there and they find like broken bits of concrete. And there was dirt marks against the side of the house that looked like there was a large mound of dirt that had been placed there. This private contractor again gets shut down by the cops because they don't want to risk actually breaking these concrete slabs and being held liable. So again, the contractor's like, look, this is what I found. Like, let's go. This seems good. Let's go. And the cops say, you know, we'd rather not drill down and prove whether or not a body is there. We're good. We can't damage the concrete. We can't damage the property to figure out if human remains are down there. Come on. Sounds right. Kristen is legally declared dead in 2002. Her family sues Paul in civil court after she is declared dead for a wrongful death. Paul's parents decide to counter sue, and they allege that Paul is just so emotionally distressed by these awful accusations against him. The caucasity. Thank you. Also... Just want to point out, why don't you just fucking dig up your own concrete and say, look, everybody come look, take pictures. Nobody. Why not prove that you are innocent? Because who wouldn't just want this over? Be done with, like, they dropped a civil case. There's no proof anyway if they decide to go through with it. And it's proved to be false and you're completely 
not completely exonerated, Paul, you suspicious fuck, but at least there's proof that that's not what happened. Paul's family also accuses the police of misconduct and negligence, which I find rich because that negligence was on Paul's behalf, in my opinion. So they sued the smart family, countersued, and the police. They accuse the police. They don't sue the police. Paul is arrested in 2006 for a DUI. Ten years pass. And in 2016, police excavate several sites on campus at Cal Poly. They do find bones, but nothing that can be positively identified as human remains. In September of 2017, the San Luis Obispo Sheriff's Office announced that the dig was beneficial, but did not elaborate beyond that. In September of 2019, Chris Lambert released a seven-episode podcast about Kristen's case. That generated a lot of attention and focus, and I will put the link to that podcast in the episode description. In January of 2020, it's reported that the FBI contacted Kristen's family and informed them that there was a major unexpected development in the case, and they might want to get away for a while. But this information turned out to be somewhat inaccurate because the person who contacted the family was actually a retired FBI agent. On January 29th, 2020, the San Luis Obispo Police Department announced that they had seized two of Paul's trucks looking for evidence. On February 5th, 2020, search warrants were served for specific items of evidence at four different locations, two of which were in San Luis Obispo. It is believed that these locations are all related to the Flores family. And Paul Flores was briefly detained during the search. They found some, quote, items of interest as a result of the search. And Paul, so far, has been named as the only person of interest in this case. The investigation is ongoing. Kristen's case remains open. Another theory that Dana mentioned in the email was that briefly there were some rumors going around that Scott Peterson, the guy who murdered his pregnant wife, Lacey Peterson, because he attended Cal Poly around the time that Kristen disappeared. Scott Peterson denies any involvement. Have they ever excavated slab of concrete? I don't know if that was one of the locations or not. They're being pretty cagey about what they did. In my opinion, if there was physical evidence, it's very unlikely that you're going to find that now at this point, considering how lucky they've been if they were involved. They're not going to not get the cars detailed in the Mm -hmm. last, like, however many years, especially with this podcast out. And then that earring. The earring, it's so fishy that they're like, I'm not even going to put this in a little paper envelope or a tissue. Like, not. I'm just going to throw this in here loose. And six months, I'll just realize, oh, that went somewhere. The housing violations of 181 prop doors. And that's not like their room doors, which probably had a hard key. That's just the entries to the building. That really blasts my Baja. Like, I can't. I was thinking it was just individual rooms, but oh my God. Yeah. As you know, because you listen, trying to go out on a high note, what is something that made you happy this week? Visiting the family. I think everyone's had their own way of how the quarantine has impacted them. Fortunately, I didn't feel that hit until later during the pandemic, but it was just good to go home and, you know, see 
family, friends. That was a positive thing. My thing is that I just started the Patreon yesterday when I recorded yesterday's episode right before I got on. And as of today, recording this episode... There are two patrons, a dear friend of mine, Meredith, and Caitlin, who was on the Pamela Smart episode. So thank you both so much. The Patreon link will be in the episode description if you are interested in helping to support the pod and help it grow. And there will be a mini episode going up there soon that's exclusive to the Patreon. So check it out. Jess, thank you so much for coming on. It was great. It brought me back to my red life days. So I, I appreciate it. Thanks so much. And listeners, thanks for tuning in. We will see you next week. Hi, friends. If you like the podcast, I would love if you would go ahead and leave me a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It's the only place that I can actually get ratings and get reviews and get ranked. Please check us out on Instagram at Monsters Walk With Us, all one word. And I'd love if you could send us an email and tell me where you're listening from, maybe suggest a case. The email address is hidden period monsters period walk at gmail.com.